Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. So I'm going to be speaking, uh, teaching today on Leviticus 23 and 24. And I think the best way for us to read our Bibles is in the presence of community. You know, I think that a lot of, one of the reasons many Christians struggle when it comes to reading their Bible is they're told to read their Bible, but that usually means read your Bible alone. And of course, it's a good thing to read your Bible alone and to read it devotionally and, and so forth. Um, but when you read the Bible together, how many of you would agree that just as we open up the scriptures together, it just opens up an entirely different perspective. And it encourage, it encourages you in a way that perhaps you would not be as encouraged reading it by yourself. And the same way it challenges you as well. And so I've just been really, really encouraged uh, by that. Just the opening of God's word and reading it together and hearing different perspectives and hearing the Holy Spirit speak through, um, you know, the community, the body of Christ. So today our chapters are Leviticus chapter 23 and chapter 24. And for the teaching portion of this morning, I'm going to spend the bulk of our teaching time in chapter 23. Uh, but hopefully I can make a few comments at the very end on the very last um, paragraph there in chapter 24. Uh, where, you know, in Leviticus, it talks about um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that should be notable for us as Christians due to Jesus's unique teaching in the New Testament, in the Gospels of, you know, you have heard it said, but I tell you, but I say, you know, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, but I tell you, you know, turn the other cheek. Um, and that is such a, a one of, the, one of the more notable aspects of Jesus's teaching. And it's interesting how he, um, he draws back on those verses in Leviticus. So hopefully at the very end, maybe we'll have a, a few moments to touch on that. Uh, but we're going today to look at the Jewish feasts that the Lord gave to the Israelites in order to mark time. And I want to emphasize the word gave because that is what the Lord did. He gave the Israelites these feasts. These were not self-appointed feasts. Um, these were feasts that were given to the people by God. And, and the word feast actually in, in, in the Hebrew literally means appointed time. And as we'll see today, God has carefully planned and orchestrated the timing and sequence of each of these feasts to reveal to us a very special story. And, you know, the annual feasts of Israel, they were spread out over seven months of the Jewish calendar at set times appointed by God, and they continue to be celebrated by observant Jews today. But why this is so applicable for us, why this matters to us today, is as for both Jews and non-Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus, these special days demonstrate to us the work of redemption through God's Son. And we're going to highlight how each of these feasts points to and are fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, some biblical commentators will 
try to suggest that Jesus hasn't fulfilled all of these feasts, but rather he has fulfilled the first half of the feast, and he will fulfill the last feast in his return when he comes again. Uh, but we don't need to get that picky this morning in seeing how Jesus is and will be the fulfillment of each of these feasts that God gave the Israelites at his appointed time. And, you know, the older that I get, the more, uh, the more and more I'm realizing that the most important resource I have is my time. You know, the most important resource a person has is time. Because once you lose it, you know, you can't get it back. But what is time? What is time? Well, time is uh, simply the measurement of motion through space. That's really all it is, you know, and we, we, because time is just motion through space, we measure it with things like days, you know, uh, we measure time by a single, we call a day, which is the, uh, the motion of the earth's revolution. One revolution is a single day. We measure time by a month, by the months. Uh, that is the moon uh, around the earth. And then we measure time by the year, you know, revol the revolution of the earth around the sun. But time itself is without meaning. It's we humans who give time its meaning. You know, we appoint time, we mark time, and we do that through naming seasons like Christmas, Christmas, or Christmas break. And suddenly that time of year has much more significance to us uh, because it's Christmas or summer vacation for all the kids who are um, concluding school this week. At this time of the year, we mark it, and it means more to a, to a child than uh, other times. Um, we appoint time by celebrating moments such as birthdays and anniversaries. And, did, and when we uh, give time meaning, what we're doing is we're telling a story. You know, your birthday, it tells a story. Your anniversary, it tells a story. I remember being uh, in Ukraine uh, for one Christmas all by myself. Uh, I think it was in 2007. And um, Christmas is celebrated in Ukraine according to the Orthodox calendar. So I think that's January uh, 7th or 8th. I couldn't get those dates wrong. But on December 25th, a day that I mark as being Christmas and a day with a lot of meaning um, in Ukraine, I was so frustrated because nobody else knew that it was Christmas. Nobody else acted that it was Christmas. In fact, everyone went about their business, um, going to work, you know, going about their daily lives. And I was sort of walking through the streets thinking, come on, people, don't you know what today is? You know, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. Be, be happy. Be exciting. But, you know, Christmas on December 25th had a special meaning to me, but for everybody else in Ukraine, it was just Wednesday. It was just another one. It was just another day of the week. You know, our calendars, they tell a story. And the way we, the way we mark time and give certain seasons and months its meaning tells you a lot about the sort of person that you are. And God, you know, gave the Israelites certain dates and seasons in which they were to mark time. And the way that they marked time was a story about who they were, about who the people of God were. You know, all people in the ancient world saw time as being sacred. That wasn't unique to the Israelites. You know, the other other peoples in the, in the ancient Near East would worship the moon and the sun for this very reason. But the Hebrews knew that it was the Lord, their God, who was creator and not creation itself. 
that was to be worshipped. And so they designated certain dates and seasons for worship so that they could teach the faith to their of their ancestors to the future generations. You know, they marked times so that when these dates and occasions came up, it was a way of them passing the faith off to the next generation. And, you know, the church today has continued this tradition of marking time around a, a sacred calendar. You know, while our tradition, uh, which is more evangelical, uh, we don't put as much emphasis on the church calendar as, a, as more other traditional denominations. You know, we still observe the seasons of Advent, uh, which begins the, uh, the four Sundays prior to uh, Christmas Day. You know, we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Holy Week, Easter, Pentecost, and, and others here might, you know, go a little bit further and celebrating and observing Lent or perhaps Epiphany. Um, but, you know, these, this calendar of holy days that we follow, uh, they tell us a story, don't they? They tell us a story about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And speaking of the religious festivals and sacred days of worship of the Jews, you know, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, it, it says that these, speaking of these, these festivals, these feasts, these religious uh, events, they are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know, Jesus is the reality of what the Sabbath, the Passover, Pentecost, and many other sacred days of worship point to. And because each of these days and seasons of worship point us to Christ, you know, we too have a lot we can glean spiritually from Israel's sacred calendar. And so in Leviticus chapter 23 is now we, we really begin to break it down. We see it provides us with a collection of three pilgrim feasts and two chief holy days. And just as the instructions yesterday were about proper observance of worship, we again in, in chapter 23 are focusing on the lay people. So we're not, this is not instructions to the priests. This is instructions to just worshipers, just to everyone, to the lay people who came to the tent of meeting to worship God. So three pilgrim convocations, also known as feasts, were when the men of the household would appear before the Lord at his sanctuary. So they are the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, unleavened, unleavened bread, and the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost, and then the Feast of Booths, also otherwise known as, uh, the, as the Tabernacle. And all three feasts were week-long celebrations. You know, and in the Book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 120 to 134, this, mar this portion of the Book of Psalms is known as the Song of Ascents. And these psalms specifically were sung by pilgrims who were making their journey to Jerusalem to worship God for one of these feasts. And just imagine that picture that on that journey, these, these families, these groups of travelers would travel together and, and they would sing these songs of worship. They would praise the Lord. They would, you know, sing of what he's done. And this was a very uh, holy, you know, holy experience for them as they uh, as many of them would ascend towards Jerusalem. You know, Psalm 122 verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And, you know, I just can't help but wonder, uh, what if you were to start singing some songs on your way to church a Sunday morning? What if the moment you left the house, you put on a worship song and you began to worship and prepare your heart and just 
began just to <laughs> seek God in worship in the car on your way to church. <laughs> I think that would be that would be awesome. And so the two holy days mentioned uh, in chapter 23 are day-long feasts. So that's the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. So uh, attendance at the sanctuary was not required of the people for these two holy days, but they were to observe the days in their homes. And so then, you know, finally, uh, you know, as sort of a, a broad, some broad remarks regarding this chapter, Israel's liturgical calendar was centered around two months. So you had the first month and the seventh month of the year were really where all these, these festivals, these feasts were contained. So two months were of significance, the first and the seventh. So the opening verses in chapter 23 um, announce the sacred nature of the feasts. They are given to the people by God. You know, it says the appointed feasts of the Lord. It's the Lord who marked and appointed these days. And therefore, uh, they belong to him. And the repetition of these words here at the beginning of chapter 23 show us the importance of these feasts in recognizing God as their provider and the source of all good things. You know, the feasts, they were not property of the Israelites. They were not a creation of the Israelites. They were not invented by the Israelites. They were given to the people by God. And therefore, they could, you know, they could not do with these events as they pleased. They were required by God to, to show up, to worship, you know, to participate. You know, and I couldn't help but think as I was, you know, studying this. Can you imagine if we made Christmas and Easter mandatory for as Christians? Is that you, you might not show up for church every week, but on Christmas and Easter, it, you are mandated to show up at church. And I was thinking, maybe we should do that. I don't know. <laughs> I think that would be kind of neat. But God had made an appointment with his people. And that appointment had to be kept. You know, it was God who was the one saying, mark this on your calendar. You have an appointment with God. You have an appointment with me. Don't miss it. Don't be late. Show up. And so these feasts were to be focused on the worship of God. You know, the congregation was not supposed to show up and just watch a band lead a song. They were required to enter into worship. And so if God sets something apart, what does that make that certain something that he has set apart? Well, the answer is holy. It's holy. And so these feasts were holy because they were consecrated unto the Lord. So the community had this very important role during these feasts of not sitting back and being entertained, but it demanded the very best of all they were. And isn't that the same? Uh, isn't, shouldn't that the same be true of today for us? You know, shouldn't our attention be focused on the Lord God? And, and when we come into his presence, that we have prepared our hearts that we have journeyed, you know, towards, uh, towards him with thanksgiving and worship in our hearts. And when we stand in his presence, we are ready to give him our everything and our all. So let's look at the first month and its uh, feasts. So the first month celebrations, they recounted the redemption and provision for God's people. So the first is uh, the Passover. The Passover was to be celebrated on the 14th day of the first month, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be followed the very next day and to be celebrated for an entire week. 
So these celebrations brought the worshiper back to the glorious days of God's liberation uh, that the nation of Israel experienced at their exodus from Egyptian bondage. You know, the story of Israel may have begun with Abraham, but the birth of a nation began at the Red Sea. And so it looked back on the formative events of the Passover, such as the smearing of blood on the doorpost of the Hebrew homes to mark their deliverance from the angel of death, who took the firstborns that were not marked by the blood of the lamb. And so the event of the Passover announced not just their liberation, but also their departure. And the same is true for us in when it comes to our deliverance of sin. You know, Jesus has liberated us from the power of sin and its bondage. But isn't it true that sin does not just require liberation, but it also requires our departure as well? That we are not just supposed to be set free from sin, only to remain in sin, but that when, when God has set us free from the power of sin, we are not to stay there. We are to depart from it as well. You know, we, we comment on our, our Lord's, you know, wonderful compassion towards sinners and their, and his willingness to welcome them and invite them into, you know, to fellowship with them. And he would often heal them. Or, you know, I think of the, um, the, the stoning of the, uh, of the prostitute in which he spared her life, but he did not end it by saying, go and, and have a great life, go and fulfill your happiness. He said, go and sin no more. I have liberated you, but now you must depart from your life, your lifestyle of sin, from the power of sin. So the unleavened bread would be baked, which uh, accompanied the, east, the eating of the roasted lamb. And who here could go for some roasted lamb and pita bread right now? Maybe a little tzatziki sauce, a little hummus. Maybe a little too early, but later today, I think we could go. I think maybe that's how we should celebrate the end of Strong. We all get together now and have some roasted lamb and, and pita bread. The two marks together would be similar to how we mark Christmas Eve and Christmas together. Both Christmas Eve and Christmas, they're, they're distinct events, but they work together to convey God's message of deliverance. And so Christians should not be surprised to know that the Passover was held in high regard by the early church, who saw their roots and the deeper meaning of the Passover deliverance, um, you know, fulfilled in Christ. Because the Passover points to the ultimate deliverance provided by Jesus, who is our Passover lamb for the forgiveness of sins and the liberation of those who were destined for death. You know, our Lord's last week in Jerusalem uh, was, you know, we, we remember the occasion of the Passover meal that he shared with his disciples during his last week. You know, Jesus would have, like everyone else, traveled to Jerusalem singing the songs of ascent with his disciples. He would have had the meal of a roasted lamb and unleavened bread, and he had it prepared for his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. And there at that meal, he transformed for them the meaning of the Passover to the Lord's Supper. It's the bread and the wine now signifying the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So, you know, two ritual events uh, announce the beginning of harvest season. You have the ceremony of first fruits in verse 9 to 14. And the second was the, uh, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, in verse 15 to 22. 
And after the redemption of Israel, the Lord led his people into the desert where he demonstrated for them his provision and care, even in their rebelliousness. He continued to provide for them. And of course, the most important provision was the land in which he led them to possess, the land of Canaan. And upon arrival into the land, the the people were to recognize God's grace by taking the first first produce of the land's harvest and offering a portion to the Lord as a symbolic gesture of worship to God for his provision. So the day of first fruits was embedded into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was on the 16th day. And if you're wondering where in the calendar this would be for our calendar, these would be during the months of March and April, these events would take place. So the second harvest celebration, known as the Feast of Weeks, followed seven weeks after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So 50 days from the day after the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, would be the Feast The feast of Weeks would begin, the second harvest celebration. So this celebration would take place in the months of May or June, depending on where it landed in the calendar. And it celebrated the harvest of grain. So, and it involved very elaborate, a very elaborate celebration with a very busy week of special activities. But most importantly, the people were forbidden to work and they were required to set aside the entire week in recognition to the Lord. And unlike the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, loaves of bread now this time were made with leaven. And uh, the leaven that was to be added to the bread was indicating the, the season of joyful gladness of the Lord's provision. And so additional animals were offered to accompany the bread and to make a a full meal. And we, as Christian readers, will know the Feast of Weeks by another name, uh, Pentecost, which happened on Pentecost, meaning, you know, 50, the 50th day. And it was on the Jewish celebration of Pentecost, the day of celebrating God's provision and the giving of the law in Sinai, that the Holy Spirit was given to the church and was poured out on the disciples gathered in the upper room. So this event, Pentecost, is significant to us because it marks the inauguration of the church and its spirit-empowered witness to the world. So now let's now fast forward to the seventh month of the calendar year. So the most important month in the Hebrews liturgical year was the seventh month. And our passage here in verse 20 in chapter 23 gives very special attention to it. So it commemorated in this month three major events, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, or tabernacle, Tabernacles. And it occurred in the fall months of September or October. So the Feast of Trumpets inaugurated the call to worship. And trumpets were always sounded at the beginning of every month, but this month was special because when the trumpets sounded, it summoned a sacred convocation. The people were required to turn from their work and to gather for a full day of sacrifice and worship. And the point of this day of rest was to prepare for the events to follow. You know, and and just as Advent prepares the church for the celebration of Christmas, the Feast of Trumpets was a spiritual preparation for the Day of Atonement. So preparation, you know, and preparation should play a major role in our worship. You know, we tend to be here in 2022 uh, very spontaneous in our worship. You know, we sort of come to church and sort of, we don't really know what to expect. We don't really know what we're going to get out of it. Maybe we fought with the kids on the way to church. Maybe we were, we were distracted by something, you know, and sometimes, you know, we get to church and it takes us a few songs 
to sort of get into a, a heart of worship, spirit of worship. But all worship should be accompanied by preparation. I think this is one of my biggest takeaways of the month of Leviticus. All worship should be accompanied by preparation. We should take worship very seriously by preparing our hearts and our minds so that, the reason why is so that God can have our very best when we enter into his presence. You know, I think that this may be one of our, one of our greatest downfalls or one of our, um, one of our major shortcomings, culturally speaking, is, is one, that we come into God's presence not anticipating that we will hear from him. We're just kind of come in and just say, we'll see what happens. And not only uh, should do we prepare for worship, so worship, and if we think of worship as maybe something we do, we gather together for a weekly event of worship. Um, not only should we prepare for worship, but then worship itself is something that prepares us for a future where we will worship God in fullness for all of eternity. So we prepare for the event, and then the event itself prepares us for eternity. You know, our worship, it readies us for a second advent, the coming of the Lord who will come again at the blast of a trumpet. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You know, I couldn't help but remember the verses of the, the famous hymn, It Is Well. The last, the last verse says, And the Lord haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. You know, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So that then leads us to the fast of atonement. And so since the Feast of Trumpets called the people to reevaluate their commitment to the Lord, it is proper that the month of worship began not with feasting, but with fasting. So that's what's different about this a Day of Atonement. It begins with, a, with fasting, not feasting. And the Day of Atonement was the only day in the calendar of worship that entailed fasting because it was a day of sorrow and repentance for sin. You know, it was on this one day that the high priest was permitted to enter into the most sacred place in the tabernacle before the Ark of the Covenant, where he bore the blood of a slaughtered animal and sprinkled the blood on the seat of atonement. Now, maybe you remember the word atonement means reconciliation, reconciliation of a relationship that has been broken. And reconciliation can only be achieved through removing an offense suffered between two parties. Now, which of the two parties, whether God and us, which of those two parties has done the offense, has offended the other? Well, it's, it's us. We are the ones who have offended God. The Israelites offended God by their sin throughout the year. And this was the means of settling the issue of the nation's sin with God. So three times the text insists that the people must afflict themselves on this day. This is not, you know, self-inflicted harm. This is not like whipping themselves and hurting themselves, but it's, it's humbling of oneself before God through refraining from the common pleasures of daily life and the ordinary work of daily life. And though it's a day of mourning, there's ample grace shown to the people on this day. You know, the day provided for them a sacrifice for sin, you know, the purging of the tabernacle and the people, and it provided them with a scapegoat that took away the sins of the community. And this day of atonement 
was to be repeated yearly. Why? Because the sins of the people were not fully and finally absolved. The perpetuity of the event was a sobering reminder to the people that their sacrifices and acts of contrition, they were not sufficient to redeem permanently their sins. And as Christians, we know that Christ is a once-for-all sacrifice, the eternal Son of God who was without sin and who shed blood one perfect and complete atonement. By entering into the heavenly throne room of God the Father, Jesus presented the only satisfying solution to the gravity of human sin. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and the calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says, and he and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our security came at the costly price of a perfect sacrifice. Now we must take up that cross of sacrifice and live a life consecrated to God. You know, an essential part of that Christ-like living then is confession of our sins before God, having genuine remorse over our sins and a renewed zeal to live a life of uprightness. Uh, So then finally, we come to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Atonement was to be followed by a week-long festive celebration known as the Feast of Booths. So five days after the Atonement, The festival would begin with a sacred assembly, and it closed on the eighth day in the same fashion in which which it began. There was to be no work done on those two days of assembly, and what distinguished this celebration from others was the building of these temporary huts or booths, where people constructed, um, they constructed these booths out of fruit and branches of palms and, and widows and other leafy trees. And the people would live in these booths during the seven days of the festivals. So they're literally camping. Isn't that awesome? We see the first ever camping trip. And so Israeli Jews today, they continue to observe the Feast of Booths by building uh, colorful dwellings. So they, you know, hang decorations from the ceilings. And um, I have a picture, um, but, you know, I just stole it from Google Images. So I would just say, go Google Images later on and uh, type in Feast of Booths. And uh, you'll see pictures of how people decorate, you know, their place today to celebrate this. It's, it's kind of neat. Uh, but the Feast of Booths brought together uh, two reasons for Israel to remember the Lord. So to remember when the people gathered in the produce of the land in verse 39. So this, inaug- this in-gathering was a joyful occasion and a blessing that urged people of God to thank him for the autumn months of uh, harvest. And then it also concluded for them the agricultural year, rounding out the provision that God gave for the year. And then the second reason was why the festival is called Feast of Booths. Because during the wilderness period after the liberation from Egypt, the people lived in temporary huts. And during that time, God provided shelter for the people's needs, including miraculous provisions of food, water, and shelter. And although this is specifically not in the biblical text, according to rabbinic tradition, The Feast of Booths would involve a ritual of a priest pouring out water at the temple's altar during this feast. And John's Gospel describes an appearance of Jesus at the Feast of Booths, and he recounts his teaching in the temple on this occasion. And this is what Jesus said during the Feast of Booths. He says, if anyone thirsts, 
let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the outpouring of water symbolized the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know Jesus presented himself as the source of that water and called upon all to drink of it by faith in him as their savior. So in conclusion, you know, what are we to draw from this text today? Well, again, it drives home the point that worship is at the core, uh, is the core identity of God's people. It lives at the core of our identity. And it's no different for us as the people of God. We're, we too are called upon by God to worship him. And I want to stress that God has called us to worship the same way he has called the Israelites to observe these feasts. God calls us to gather together as his people. And I want to mark the, the seriousness, the high importance of gathering to worship. Because as many of us have grown up, not all of us, but many of us have grown up in a Western culture. We are immersed in a spirit of independence and individualism that cannot help but creep into how we view worship. You know, we go to, we go to church. We go and we pray that God will, God, God will come to us. And, and maybe we don't necessarily mean it, but sometimes we have that mindset that I've chosen to go to church and therefore God should come and fellowship with me. But what if it's the other way around? What if church is not something we go to, but church, the gathering of God's people, is an invitation of God to stand in his presence with, with his people. And we either have the choice to accept that invitation or decline. That God isn't the one who comes and fellowships with us when we show up. But what if God has already shown up before we even got there? What if God was standing ready and he was already waiting for you before you even woke up? And he's calling on you to come and fellowship with him. So the Lord calls the Israelites to these seasons of worship. And what if it's no different for you and I? I just want to encourage you today as we leave to have that shift in mindset that when we worship the Lord, it's not us that's initiating worship and God responding. But what if our worship was God initiating and us who are the ones who are responding? And I think if you come to see this uh, and, and for, for many other practices, especially prayer, prayer is not initiating conversation with God. It's answering God. It's responding to the God who has initiated conversation with you. It can very much change your thinking and the way you see the importance of preparation, of readying your heart, of coming into his presence with a pure heart and, and clean hands, to come when not when we feel like it, but to come when we not feel like it because at the end of the day it's not about us it's about him worship is about god and it's his appointment with us not our appointment with him and if we have this mentality of worship it won't matter if we become persecuted it won't matter if we encounter hardship it won't matter if we have to go through another pandemic we will persevere in our allegiance to christ and our worship to God, because we know we are participating in the life of the redeemed. Thank you for joining us today. 
A heartstrong disciple of Jesus is one who has been saved by grace and is becoming more like Jesus by abiding in him, learning how Jesus lived, and following in his ways. One of the ways we are helping you become heartstrong is through the monthly training plan, which breaks down how you can practice and develop your spiritual disciplines. Each month, you will find the theme and the focus for the month, a scripture to memorize, a fasting and a Sabbath practice, all of your Bible study, events and schedules and links, questions for personal reflection, and additional recommended content for the weekend. Of course, you have to be a HeartStrong member to access this awesome resource. So visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together. One, two, three.